Embodiment has become a really big interest of mine, and it's really about listening to the body. And it is trying to communicate with us. And I think in contemplative practice, if we spend so much attention to the mind, like that's a huge thing. But what is the mind? You know, the mind isn't just up here in our heads, right? The mind is throughout our entire body and our nervous system. And I don't think we've paid enough attention to the autonomic nervous system and the way it handles stress and the way that it's always giving us information that if we start listening to it, we can find out what it likes and be kind to it. Then it's an act of self-compassion. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. Today I'm speaking with contemplative educator and researcher, Brendan Ozawa da Silva. Brendan has been studying and teaching mindfulness and compassion for over a decade, and has recently been focusing on integrating trauma-informed and embodied practices into his work. He's also served as the Associate Director of the SEE Learning Program, that's S-E-E, developed at Emory University, which is an international K-12 and higher education, social, emotional, and ethical learning program. Brendan shares a lot more about that in our conversation. I spoke with Brendan earlier this spring, and we covered quite a bit of ground. He starts off with his introduction to the contemplative world and shares a fascinating practice from the Japanese tradition called Nikon. We talk about his experience adapting contemplative training to a variety of settings, including elementary schools. And he shares his thoughts on the capacity of young people, not just for compassion and mindfulness, but also understanding the conceptual frames that contemplative systems are grounded in. We get into an interesting discussion of what's missing in contemplative research. And Brendan shares some insights around how empathy and compassion are things that arise between people, not just inside of one person. And he talks about the embeddedness of researchers in the systems they study and how we need to change our research to reflect that reality. Then we get into the C learning program that Brendan has helped develop. We talk about its goals and application and discuss trauma in the body and nervous system regulation. These are aspects of the curriculum as well as the role of contemplative practice and forgiveness in healing. Brendan also reflects on common barriers to compassion and how we often misunderstand what compassion really means. There's lots more in here as well, and also check the show notes for links to more of Brendan's work, including a number of freely available resources from the C Learning Program. I so appreciate the various lenses that Brendan looks through when it comes to contemplative science. In this discussion alone, for example, we talk about Buddhist philosophy, quantum physics, cognitive science, anthropology, history, clinical psychology, and more. This, to me, is what this work is all about, bringing all of these perspectives together to get a better understanding of our minds and how we can change them. I think this episode will be especially interesting to educators, but really to anyone who's interested in how contemplation can be applied for healing and well-being. Okay, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'm really happy to share with you Brendan Ozawa da Silva. Well, I am so pleased to be joined today by Brendan Ozawa da Silva. Brendan, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Wendy. It's my pleasure. It's a joy. I'd love to start by hearing some of the backstory from our guests. So I'm curious for you how you got into the contemplative world and studying and teaching compassion and just your path, however you want to share that. Okay, sure. Um, my path has been long and winding, I would say. But um, probably actually... I can credit it to my wife, uh, Chikako, who is um, also at Emory. She's a professor of anthropology. We met at grad school uh, in England. We were at the same uh, college at Oxford, St. Anthony's College. We became friends. We started dating. And she was showing me chapters of her um, PhD dissertation. And it was on Nikon, which is a Japanese spiritual practice of introspection remembering your past from the perspective of other people in your life, your mother, your father, brothers, sisters, um, and recalling uh, what this person gave to me, what I gave in return, and what trouble did I cause this person. And you do this for a week, 
14 hours a day, you sit behind a paper screen and that's all you do. And uh, every few hours, the practitioner comes and you report to them uh, what you've remembered. And people have incredible experiences. They remember so much. They start to remember by day three or four so much from their past. And it really transforms them. It can be very transformative uh, because people realize that they've been, they've received countless acts of kindness from others and there's no way they would have survived or be where they are without that. Um, and so I was reading this and I was thinking, wow, this is really interesting. And Nikon is a practice that was secularized from Buddhism. So the founder was a true Pure Land Buddhist uh, who was engaged in very rigorous contemplative practice to attain enlightenment. Uh, and he wasn't very good at it. So he, he had to keep trying. He kept failing. His wife was very good. Like she had a breakthrough, her first experience. And he had to try, I think, six, seven times. So when he finally had a breakthrough experience, he, he thought, wow, this is so great. It was so powerful for him. And he felt such joy and well-being, compassion for others. He wanted others to do it, but he realized they might have trouble. So he created Nikon. And he simplified this complex Buddhist practice down to those three questions which is still probably the most elegant kind of contemplative practice I've ever come across in terms of how mm. profound it is and how simple it is. Three questions. Have you engaged in it yourself? No, I haven't been able to do like the full seven day, 14 hours a day thing. Cause you have to, generally you go to a center uh -huh. and there are no centers in the US. So on our honeymoon, actually we started our honeymoon in Vienna and you know, as a true scholar, Chicago wanted to start her, our honeymoon by visiting a Nikon center. In <laughs> How romantic. <laughs> yeah. And we went to one and the, the guy running it, Franz Ritter, very nice fellow, uh, said, you know, he, he, when he heard I hadn't done it, he said, oh, just stay here. You can just do it for a week. So I could have spent the first week in my honeymoon doing it. <laughs> right. In um, but for those listeners of yours who haven't come across Nikon, there's not as much written in English as in Japanese and German. But there is some literature, and it's there's quite a lot in German, actually, and then there's a lot in Japanese. And it's a fascinating practice that we should study and practice more in the West, I think. So reading that really kind of, you know, the light bulbs didn't go off, but those were the seeds. So I thought, wow, that's really interesting what she's studying, and I never thought about Buddhism this way, or this, this sounds a lot more interesting than what I had encountered. And then we, um, she got a postdoc at um, University of Chicago, and we went out there, and... I was finishing writing up and we went to this new age bookstore in Madison, Wisconsin, and they had a copy of Destructive Emotions, a scientific dialogue with the Dalai Lama, edited by Dan Goleman and Richie Davidson, I think. Uh -huh. And it was, you know, the transcript and the, the edited book of the Mind and Life dialogue on that. And I just picked it up and read it and Chicago read it and it blew us away. And then we started assigning that in our classes. We signed that for the first graduate seminar that we taught together, which was at University of Chicago called Religion and Therapy. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. Shortly after that, I read, you know, The Monk and the Philosopher with Mathieu, who I think you just had on your podcast. Yes. And so those books um, kind of opened my eyes to the world of contemplative science. And uh, I've been interested in it ever since. Well, you humbly left out some of your accolades in that you have um, two PhDs, in fact. <laughs> One in history, is that right? And then one from Emory and religion? It's not really an accolade. It's, it's more like an embarrassment. <laughs> you know, doing twice what most people can accomplish a single time. So that's why I don't mention it usually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's pretty fascinating to have that much experience in multiple fields. And along the way, I'm actually curious if you have that lens of history on any of this field or if that plays in, because I just think that's kind of a fascinating intersection. Well, I'm not a historian of contemplative science or, or anything yeah. like that. So I, I did my PhD on religion in East Germany under communism. So it was German history. My interest was in historiography because um, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, a West German historian called Gerhard Bezier went in and he, when East Germany collapsed and Germany reunified, they opened up all the Stasi archives. Um, and a lot of the state and police archives. So he went in and he found out that the church, which had been seen as a pro-democratic force, because a lot of the pro-democracy movement started in the church that led to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Leipzig um, prayer protest and everything. They, um, there were a lot of collaborators inside, collaborators with the Stasi and with the state. So he wrote these giant volumes that were kind of exposés 
of these church leaders. And it was very devastating for many people within the church. And he never talked to any of the people that he wrote about. And in some cases, he was actually wrong, you know, because they used code names, the Stasi did. So, you know, it was a time of great upheaval. And I thought, well, what would happen if you went in and you looked at not just the Stasi archives and the state archives, but you also looked at the church archives, their recordings of these same meetings. And what if you talked to some of the church leaders and not just the, the people on the state side? So that's what I did. And historiography is still really interesting to me because it's really about how, as a scholar or as a scientist, it, because I think the same thing happens in science, we study other people as objects and uh, sometimes we don't take the time to really talk to them and understand them. And sometimes our work does harm. Um, and anthropology, I think, has gone through a, a similar thing. What happens when you write about other people who don't have a voice or don't have the same power that you have? So that interest in historiography has stayed with me and um, the ethical issues around research. But then, you know, as you said, I went and did um, a second PhD on the advice of uh, my friend and mentor, Geshe Lobsang Tenzin, who is at Emory and runs our Compassion Center at Emory. He said, you know, Brendan, have you ever thought about going and getting another PhD and, you know, focusing on contemplative science? So I thought it was kind of crazy, but I did <laughs> it. And I think that has shaped me a lot because I went from a pure humanities field in history to then most of my coursework was in psychology with, you know, our mutual friends, you know, Larry Barcelo and people like that. And so I was exposed to psychology and neuroscience for the first time and to, to running meditation studies and all this kind of stuff, a completely different way of thinking. And um, that has influenced me a lot. And, you know, that suits me. I like doing interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary stuff. Yeah. So is that how you ended up at Emory through Geshe Lobsang? No, uh, I ended up at Emory because Chicago was on the job market. She got a um, tenure track position at Emory in the anthropology department. I got a postdoc at the same time in the study of religious practices. And, uh, and we came, um, but one of the first people I met when we came, like I started emailing people. I found out when we were visiting for our campus visit, the religion department um, had a little brochure and it mentioned Drepung Losling Monastery, this Tibetan institution of higher learning that's affiliated with Emory. And I was like, wow, that's fascinating. There's an academic affiliation with the Buddhist monastery. And um, so I sent an email to Geshe Lobsang and he told me years later, I totally forgot about this, that I wrote just to the center address, you know, center at drepung.org. But he saw the email and responded to me. And I guess I introduced myself and then he wrote back and he remembers thinking, oh, this like might be an interesting person, you know, <laughs> to talk to. And it's funny because now like 20, it's 20 years and we've been close friends and collaborators and, and work together on many, many different things. And he's, he's my boss now. So... <laughs> It's funny how that happened, but yeah. yeah, And that's and then coming to Atlanta and starting to attend Draping Listing is how I became exposed to Tibetan Buddhism, which then became the main tradition that I ended up studying. So yeah, this kind of takes us into the next chapter, I guess, for you, which is the training programs that were being developed at Emory through Geshe Lobsang and others um, to train compassion in, in secular settings, which you became very involved in. And so I know that you have worked in a lot of different settings, bringing compassion training to different groups, elementary schools, prisons, women who um, experience domestic violence and foster care settings. So I'm just thinking about um, all of the adaptation that has to happen through that and kind of the skillful means that you need to use to make these practices and trainings alive and relevant for these different groups and different needs. So I just wanted to pick your brain about that since you are a, such a skilled teacher and, and adapter, I suppose. Um, so I'm wondering if there's lessons from that, if people are going to be trying to adapt programs to specific populations. Yeah, I think that is kind of a passion of mine, is that we have this treasure trove of information and practices and theory about compassion in different religious traditions. I mean, the, the one I'm most familiar with is this Indian and Tibetan Buddhist traditions. And the challenge I think that we have nowadays is how do we adapt that to meet people where they are, you know, because we can't expect them to uh, become scholars of Buddhism uh, or become Buddhist 
right? Which um, is not something I would desire anyway. And also our cultural world is so incredibly different. And even if we talk about uh, Tibetans, uh, for example, their world is rapidly becoming different as it has modernized in Tibet and as Tibetans in exile increasingly. They're, you know, they're, it's just the way of things. So this world is a different world um, than the world that uh, generated a lot of these practices. It's not a completely different world. We're still human beings. Um, but it is significantly different. And I think that the advances we've made in bringing contemplative practices to more people as a resource that they can choose to use have really happened through skillful adaptation, John Kabat-Zinn and mindfulness-based stress reduction being the most obvious and perhaps most impactful example of that. It's really a work of genius to take these different traditions and repackage them in such a simple way and not lose a sense of authenticity. You know, uh, you probably know John better than I do, but having met him and heard him speak, his commitment to authenticity is very powerful. You know, his connection to this idea of Dharma is at the center of what he's doing. So that is very encouraging. And I think we need more of that um, because it's not that the core, I think, ideas of compassion and empathy and so forth are radically different, but the way we reach people has to be different. There's a kind of sense nowadays that I'm getting, I don't know if you have this, but people who have been watching this field for the last 10, 15, 20, 25 years, there's a kind of sense that it hasn't necessarily reached the potential that we thought it would 10, 15 years ago. Not that it's not growing and more people are discovering mindfulness and other practices and compassion, but that when I look at the research studies that I've been involved in, the results are somewhat disappointing. The amount of time people practice is mm -hmm. sometimes mm -hmm. horrifically low. Uh, you know, we've run studies where <laughs> the amount of practice time that the subjects are engaging in, in practice because they're reporting it is lower than the practice time in their actual session like once per week, the guided meditation, right? Because they're not attending every session. So that, <laughs> so their at-home practice seems to be like less than zero, which doesn't seem possible, but just because they're missing sessions. So that means that we're missing something, right? That somehow there's something's being lost in translation. And having worked with different groups, uh, when I went to the prison, it taught me that, that I needed to understand trauma. And when I worked with um, Brooke Lavelle, our mutual friend, you know, going to elementary schools and middle schools, uh, that taught me that we need to, um, and she taught me that we need to adapt these practices into very accessible embodied uh, activities with children. So embodiment has become a really big interest of mine. Um, embodied pedagogy, active learning, engaged learning, you know, using games, using theater, using um, activities, you know, getting people up on their feet, moving around, you know, it doesn't all have to be uh, on the cushion, you know, the cushion is like one possible thing, right? Um, but first you have to connect with people. And I think it's a lot easier to connect with people when they're actually engaged in doing something. You know, we remember experiences, we don't remember words that are not connected to experiences. You know, so just talking at people, which is what I used to do a lot and what I'm doing right now. <laughs> it's less effective than like trying to create an experience with, with someone. Yeah. So I think the embodiment aspect and the trauma-informed aspect have been two major things that I've learned and that I'm interested in, in continuing to explore. I definitely want to dig into both of those um, with you because I think they're really so central to the kinds of transformation that contemplative work is is aiming towards. Um, I did have one question before we go into those about um, just working with children and your work with those elementary school children. I'm curious as to your experience with younger children and their capacity for these states or qualities of you know mindfulness and compassion. And if you see differences from adults and if you have thoughts on, you know, why that might be or, yeah, just your reflections on working with young people. Yeah, I love talking about that. So 
I have to put in a plug for the podcast that I'm launching. Yeah. <laughs> which is called Mindful Dialogues because of my co-host, uh, Kitty Graham, uh, who uh, is a student at Emory University. She's an undergraduate. And in 2008, 2009, when Brooke and I were starting to go to these schools, she was a student in one of the classes, one of the first classes that we taught, that we visited for about half a year. So she was six years old in that class. And this was the very first time we had tried to adapt cognitively based compassion training, which was developed for undergraduates and adults for five, six, seven year old kids. So we had to break everything down. And a lot of people, you know, when I would mention what we were teaching and trying to do, because we weren't just teaching mindfulness, you know, we were teaching mindfulness, but we were also teaching perspective taking, perspective taking for bullies, uh, self-compassion, compassion for others, uh, equanimity and uh, impartiality, interdependence, and watching for risky emotions or destructive emotions as they arise, catching the spark before it becomes a forest fire. All these kinds of things. And some of my friends and senior colleagues would hear about this and say, you know, I don't even think a five or six-year-old kid is actually developmentally able to do that, right? Or the brain isn't even developed. You know, they haven't even developed like metacognition yet. That's, you know, so how can you do these practices? Resting the mind in its natural state, Mahamudra. You know, like this is crazy. Uh, and then some adults said, no, I like I wonder. So I remember I was telling the president of Emory University once uh, at the time, Jim Wagner, about what we were doing. And I was telling him about the interdependence exercise. And he said, even before I said anything about what we found, he said, oh, I bet those small kids get that even faster than adults. And I said, yeah, I think they do. But all these people have been telling me you can't even teach that to kids. Yeah. But you know, we found they do get it really quickly. Why would you say that? And he said, because they're dependent on other people for everything. They can't even tie their own shoelaces without somebody else. You know, they, they're aware of how dependent they are on others. Um, they don't have this illusion of independence that we have as we grow up. And I was like, yeah, you know, I never thought about it like that. So we did all those things. And then now Kitty reached out to me 12 years later, and then we've been in communication the last couple of years. And she was a student in my class with Geshe Lubsang that we co-taught last semester, which was amazing. And she had this idea to do this podcast that we're doing. And one of the first things I asked her, I said, what do you remember from that time when you were six? And she said, I remember catching your emotion when it's just a spark before it becomes a forest fire. And I remember the interdependence exercise we did. That was mind blowing. And I remember uh, Brooke reading the What If story by Shel Silverstein, uh, the, the what if mind, you know, what if this happens? What if this happens? What, if, you know, how we have to kind of catch our what if mind. And she remembered, you know, the mindfulness practices because she used to go home and practice mindfulness and teach them to her mother and grandmother at home, to her family. So, and, and, and on and on. So she remembered so much. And then at the end, she said, you know, I don't think there's anything that the children of that age can't take in from these practices that adults can, but children of that age can't because they're going through all these things emotionally anyway. They're experiencing them, you know. So to be given practices and a vocabulary and be shown that in the classroom is so valuable. So. I think that being reconnected with Kitty has kind of, in a way, restored my faith in these practices <laughs> that I was starting to lose from just doing research yeah. and looking at numbers. Yeah, that's interesting. It, um, I've, I've thought for a long time about the research. And as you say, you know, I would say across the field, results are mixed and it's it's not what the media made it out to be, you know, in the early days of this panacea and every study has these amazing results. Although there certainly are, you know, benefits that have been found again and again. But I've thought for some time that perhaps that's because we're not really measuring the right things. You know, we're not looking at the outcomes that are the things that, that actually change in people's lives, which are inherently much harder <laughs> to measure from a scientific perspective. So just on that note, do you have thoughts about like, if we could measure different things what kinds of things might actually be more meaningful and consistently changed from practice? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think I totally agree with you. I mean, I think that 
we need to change the way we're doing the research methodologically. Part of that issue is around measures. We, we need better measures. And part of the issue is actually think there are even more profound ways we could change the methodology of how we're studying things. And then the other side of it, I think, is that we still need to improve our programming, which means continuing to try to push towards meeting people where they are because our engagement levels are too low. So like if, if we have practice times that are so low, and if we know that at the end of the study, most of the people who, even if they did practice during the study, stop practicing after the study, then that's a problem in our teaching. That's a problem in our programming. That's not a problem with the, with the science or the measurement. So I think we should handle it from both sides. So I think we need improvement on both sides. But with regard to the measures, um, yeah, I think we need better measures. I'm very interested in performance measures. So if we really think that compassion and empathy are skills that are being cultivated, you know, so many of our research studies are not actually showing whether people are actually cultivating those skills, right? We're seeing like, oh, can it be used as a treatment for depression or anxiety or other things? But like, are people actually getting better at these processes of compassion, being compassionate and being empathetic? And what does that really mean? How do we break that down? You know, I was with my mother going to a hearing test because she was getting a hearing aid and she has one now and it works well. So I'm very happy with that. But I, I just went along with her and I'm so glad I did because we went to this kind of little lab and there's the audiologist and she puts my mother in a booth and my mother gets headphones and they're playing different tones. And because I'm a musician and I was just fascinated by this, they're playing tones at different frequencies, right? And then asking her, you know, can you hear this? Can you not hear this? And they're increasing and decreasing the volume. And then on the basis of that, they're creating a graph to see the level of her hearing loss across each band of the frequency spectrum. And then she says, and then we're, your hearing aid is going to be calibrated to this. So this is the diagnostic tool. And then this is also the, the way we calibrate the hearing aid to, to fix your hearing loss. So the different frequency bands will be boosted by different amounts, right? And I thought like, wow, it's such a simple and yet sophisticated way of doing it. And do we have anything like that for empathy, for compassion, for forgiveness? Like we have nothing like that. And I know you like graphs and you like models. <laughs> so I thought this <laughs> might appeal to you. Because I was watching this and I'm like, this is incredible. And she's got a little computer program and she's moving the slider up and down based on what my mother's saying. And then it's like, boom, we've got it, you know? So I think we could do a lot in that area. We, we need more imagination. But I also think that, and this is going to be harder to put into words. So Chicago and I are starting something at Emory and we're starting a lab. Mm. Um, it's called the Social Empathy Lab. And originally it was just going to be for undergrads, but now some grad students want to be in. And so now some like other <laughs> faculty are like, oh, we want to, <laughs> it sounds interesting. But the idea is like that so often we study empathy, compassion as kind of individual states or traits or whatever within a single person's mind. Mm. And we don't explore it so much as something that arises between people and among people. And I would be very interested in methodologies that try to get at that. I think that the reason Chicago is starting this lab with me is because she has a strong intuition as well that anthropology, which has always been the study of other cultures and difference, you know, anthropology is kind of, is in a bit of a crisis right now um, because they're wondering what the future of their field is going to be, especially cultural anthropology. I would say probably not everyone will agree with that, but a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people would agree, I think. And they're very, they're becoming very interested in what ethical anthropology means, right? Because anthropology is a discipline of going off and studying what used to be called quote unquote primitive people, indigenous people, um, and then translating that back for the West, basically, you know, that's been done and it was, it, it had its colonialist past and everything, but, but what is, what does the future mean? So she's very interested in dialogical anthropology. Like what would it mean to co-create knowledge? that is based on mutual understanding, not on an individual scholar being the controller of knowledge production and dissemination, which is inherently a power imbalance, right? So, and I, I was thinking more about this and thinking, well, you could say the same thing about psychology and neuroscience. Like, you know, the study of empathy as just the study of other people's states of empathy is kind of already missing what empathy actually is, which is something that arises between people. And the scientist isn't outside of that, mm. you know? So 
I was thinking also about His Holiness's interest in quantum physics, which, so when we were developing C Learning, our K through 12 and higher education program, um, at every meeting, practically, the Dalai Lama talked about quantum mechanics and quantum physics, and hmm. we were very confused. I was extremely confused, like, how are we going to teach this to kindergarten kids? I don't get it. But, um, and I still don't get it, to be honest. <laughs> but one of the things I think that he's really interested in, in quantum mechanics is this idea that um, at least in in his view and the view of of others, like quantum mechanics shows us that our study of reality and our study of objects in that reality involves us as the scientist or as the observer, right? And we are also part of the reality. We and our understanding is part of the same reality that we're studying. We're not outside of that, and we can never be outside of that. So what does it mean to fully embrace the fact that we are inside of that, that we are part of that system, you know? And I was thinking, since this is the Mind and Life podcast, you know, I wonder what Francesco Varela would have thought about that, because he was very interested in neurophenomenology, as I know, and I know you're interested in that. But, you know, neurophenomenology is another thing that I feel like has not in any way achieved its potential. Um, but to me, you know, maybe that's because it still is being approached in this objectivist way. And I just wonder what it would mean for science and for scholarship and research for us to take seriously, especially when we're studying things like empathy and compassion, our own embeddedness in what we're studying. And I think that's the kind of forward direction that we have intuited we should go in, but methodologically we're still trying to find out how to do that. So the Social Empathy Lab is to explore that, to like, how are we studying each other and ourselves collectively as a community? And starting from there, before we like launch our research projects on how we're going to study other people. And when we do do that, how do we involve them in the research meaningfully, not just as objects of, of the research, but as subjects? I really love that. Um, and as you've been speaking, actually, quite a bit of this conversation has been bringing to mind Francisco Varela and, and his ideas, even what you said originally about your study of history and including the subjective perspective of the, the people who are being written about or stories that are being told. So I can see that thread uh, really runs through your work in so many ways. I mean, what you're proposing is a really radical shift in science, right? And in, in how we think about science and, and research. And I couldn't agree more that we need to be moving in this direction of understanding embeddedness, interconnectedness, and weaving that into the methods, which is a real challenge. But I love that you've started a, a lab to dig into that. So I'm really excited to hear where that goes. So you mentioned the program C Learning, which I know you've been really involved in for many, many years. Uh, so that's social, emotional, and ethical learning. So can you give us just an overview of, of that program and the, the goals there and, and how it's unfolded? Sure, absolutely. C Learning as a program, the impetus for it is really the vision of uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama for bringing secular ethics, what he calls secular ethics, into education. Um, and by that, he means the cultivation of basic human values, compassion, empathy, uh, forgiveness, self-discipline, generosity, and so on. So he has been promoting that for a long time and wanting people to, uh, to do that because he sees education as the most uh, effective way of bringing these values into society. I think for multiple reasons, um, you know, uh, most people go through some form of education and also we tend to be more receptive to things like this when we are when we are children and growing up so developmentally it's a crucial time and to an opportunity to to reach people so and he has a very long-term vision of that um, i remember what turned me on to the idea um, and the reason why i've been so involved is because i read a uh, transcript of a meeting. I was actually transcribing the audio of a meeting he had. Mm. So the Dalai Lama was talking about how if we do research now on basic human values, then we could introduce them into education in, in 10, 20 years. Then 20, 30 years from that point, we would see children who had grown up their entire life having been exposed to this. Mm. And then we would see 
the leaders, the world leaders that they elect. And then 20, 30 years from there, we would see the society that would be created. So it was this hundred year vision that is very systems thinking way of thinking about it. Like he has a whole theory of change in his mind. Yeah. That's very sophisticated, you know, that recognizes that part of the reason we have the problems we have is because we keep electing the leaders that we do, you know, and that is because of our own level of awareness. So I just thought that was a, a beautiful vision. And um, what we've tried to do in C learning is to bring what His Holiness felt was, was missing in modern education. And that was really talking about these basic human values and the skills that go along with cultivating them. So C learning is kind of a, we used it as an opportunity to try to bring many different strains of education together. Mindfulness in education, bringing compassion training into education, systems thinking. A lot of these ideas we got from Daniel Goleman and Peter Senge, but also we drew from nonviolent communication, peace studies, peace and conflict transformation studies. So there's so many wonderful things going on in education, but people don't always know how they're related to each other. So we spent the first several years creating the C learning framework to show how they all fit together that we can think about the cultivation of ethical discernment and bring ethics into social emotional learning by having the personal dimension, the interpersonal or social dimension, and then the systems dimension. And we have to think on all three of those levels. So then uh, we developed a curricula for that and we worked with uh, partners, teachers, educators in the US and abroad and uh, created curriculum at all the different grade levels uh, for K through 12 which are now out there. It's a free program. It's being translated and been translated to many different languages. And then we rely on our affiliates around the world to, to implement the program. And we have a research uh, arm as well. You know, we were very gratified when Daniel Goleman, who's one of our advisors and who was one of the founders of the social emotional learning movement, he called it SEL 2.0. And he said specifically because it brings in the elements of compassion and ethics on the one hand, and also systems thinking, which were two things that weren't really being done much in SEO. Right. But a third element, and we touched on this earlier, is it's also a heavily trauma-informed program. So uh, another consultant for us was Elaine Miller-Karras, director of the Trauma Resource Institute. I became connected with her after I started teaching in prison and realized I needed to know more about trauma. And she and her team have developed these very easy-to-use body-based skills and by learning to re-regulate the nervous system through these simple sensory-based skills, like pushing against a wall, drinking a glass of water and noticing the sensations, grounding practice, resourcing practice, um, really attending to the information that our bodies are giving us all the time, our nervous system is giving us, and using uh, these body-based and sensory-based practices to create calmness and safety in the body. That is so powerful as a preliminary practice to meditation or other contemplative practices. So, uh, so I found that in working in prisons, and I also found that working with kids, you know, that to try to teach them yoga or mindfulness meditation, a sit sitting meditation, before they've regulated their nervous systems, you know, is asking a lot from them. Because, you know, if they're very tired and they want to sleep or they're like have all this energy in them and they want to run around, to kind of just get them to force themselves to do something like that generally doesn't work very well. So those body-based and sensory-based trauma-informed practices actually form the first body chapter of C-learning, kind of unit mm. uh, of C-learning, and they've been extremely popular. That's awesome. I, I am so glad to see this program integrating trauma-informed perspectives because, I don't know, just over the last few years, I've really come to appreciate the centrality of nervous system regulation, just like you say, like at a very fundamental level, we kind of operate based on safety or threat, right? Yeah. That's kind of a really primary <laughs> thing that we're always attuned to. You were saying that your interest was sparked around trauma from working in the prison system. And then you began integrating that also in your work with, uh, with young children. And I'm just thinking about um, traditionally in psychology, we think about trauma, like capital T trauma, which even, you know, there's a list of the things that are considered to be traumatic events. And I'm just wondering with all your experience in teaching this and engaging with different folks using that lens, where do you draw the line on what is considered traumatic? 
because it seems to me that it can be a lot more than just those really big capital T trauma events, um, depending on the nervous system that's involved. So just would love your reflections on that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, we're already kind of in a way coming at it from a different angle, because as I mentioned, C-learning has this whole unit on trauma and resilience informed practice. Uh, and we also use that term trauma and resilience informed to show mm. that it's a, we're trying to take a strengths-based approach and also to show that it's universal. That like, just like you said, dysregulation of the nervous system because of perceived threats or, or sensed threats is a universal thing that happens all the time. You know, it's just a part of our life. Sometimes we use the word adversity rather than trauma, right? We all experience adversity. And yeah, there's big T trauma. And then there's little t trauma, which is like, I'm afraid of dogs. So every time I see a dog or I hear a dog barking or I walk through a dog park, then my nervous system reacts to that. And I feel fear or anxiety, you know, and I have to recognize that, that that's there, you know, it's legitimate, right? And then also there's C trauma, you know, cumulative trauma or collective trauma. So when my community you know, my people, the history of my people, whatever has, has suffered, or there's just continual small, you know, microaggressions, you know, these little things that kind of build up over time, that this actually also over time can impact my nervous system and has effects that are very similar to big T trauma. So I think this larger view is very helpful and once we take this lens, then we see that this can like help everybody, like even people who have no problem meditating um, and love to sit down and meditate. Still, when they learn these practices, you know, they find that they can be useful. You know, I remember coming back on a flight from India with Geshe Lubzang Tenzin, who meditates, I think, three hours a day. He grew up from a relatively young age studying these practices and everything. So he, he has to be considered a pretty expert meditator, even though, of course, he would never present himself that way. But we, we were talking about these things in India and uh, I was talking to him about the practice of how like one part of your body is feeling uncomfortable or pain, you know, you can shift to a different part of your body that feels better. And just instead of our mind always going to the source of irritation, right, shift to, you know, just some place that feels better, even if it doesn't feel good, a little better. And I said, you know, we were just about to take this like 12 hour plane ride back from India I said, I often do this on the airplane because, you know, you can feel very uncomfortable on the airplane. So we got on the airplane and we were not sitting next to each other. We flew over and I was trying to do this and I started scanning my body and I got quite alarmed because my feet were like very cold on the plane. You know, sometimes that happens, these international flights. And then my body was scrunched into this tiny seat and, you know, my left hip kind of hurt and my right knee hurt and my arm hurt and my head hurt and I had a headache on one side of my head. And I thought, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to find any part of my body that feels all right. <laughs> this is just, I, I was becoming more alarmed doing this. But then I suddenly realized that I had this headache on the left side of my face. And I thought, well, if the headache is on one side, then the other side automatically feels better. It doesn't necessarily feel good, but it has to feel better, right? Uh -huh. So I shifted my attention to the other side of my face. And the instant I did that, I felt my body starting to relax a little. And then I noticed, okay, my shoulders are starting to relax. Okay, now my legs are starting to relax. And then you shift your attention to the parts where you notice that relaxation. And that creates this cascading effect. And then before I knew it, I fell asleep. So we, we land in the Atlanta airport and, you know, and I see him and he says, oh, Brendan, you know, on the plane, I was doing that technique you were talking about. And he said, and I started looking through my body, I had some pain in one part. So I started looking for some place that felt better. But then I found all the different parts of my body hurt and I couldn't do it. <laughs> And then I was getting, you know, I wasn't sure what to do. And, he says, and then I found my eyelids. I had no sensation on my eyelids. So I focused on my eyelids and I started to relax and then I fell asleep. That's amazing. Practical tips for international travel. Right, it. right, right. Um, I use this going to sleep sometimes too, you know, finding the part of her body that feels comfortable. Yeah, so it's not just about trauma, I guess. It's really about listening to the body. Mm. And the body has a mind of its own. That's one of my favorite sayings now, which I'm sure somebody else made up. But that's the thing that I say all the time. The body has a mind of its own. And it is trying to communicate with us. So we have to listen to it. 
And I think in contemplative practice, if we spend so much attention to the mind, like that's a huge thing. But what is the mind? You know, the mind isn't just up here in our heads, right? The mind is throughout our entire body and our nervous system. And I don't think we've paid enough attention to the autonomic nervous system and the way it handles stress and the way that it's always giving us information that if we start listening to it, we can find out what it likes and be kind to it. And it's an act of self-compassion because our body is, you know, another way I talk about it is it's almost like we have a little child or a little animal inside of us that doesn't speak yet, doesn't, so we can't understand words. So you can't just tell it, we don't need to worry about this, right? It doesn't listen to you. Like, you know, how many of us have lain awake at bed? We're trying to tell ourselves, I don't need to worry about this. I don't need to worry about this. I need to sleep. And our body's like, I don't care. I'm worried about this. Right. <laughs> I, I can't understand what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. But then we do something that helps our body calm down. We comfort it in some way by touching something that's soft or thinking of something or listening to some music that makes us feel calmer or happier. You know, like drink some tea with honey or something like that. You know, like, and then our body starts to relax, just like you would comfort a small child. So, you know, I know for myself, up to 10 years ago, I never paid any attention to learning about what my body wants or what it needs or what it's trying to tell me. So it can be quite liberating to explore that. Mm. I love that you're integrating this into this really wide-ranging program. I think I thinking of the the Dalai Lama's 100-year view it is really powerful, you know. I wish that I had learned about my nervous system as a child. I can't imagine the changes in my life or the things that would be different in my life. So that's fantastic. One other question on trauma, just wondering if you bring a lens at all on intergenerational trauma. Thinking beyond one life, but kind of historically, does that enter into the picture at all? Yeah, absolutely. When I was, you know, saying the, the big T trauma, little t trauma, and C trauma, mm -hmm. and that C can be collective or cumulative trauma. And the collective side of it, I think, is has to do with that, like our collective memory and our sense of identity. And I think that's very powerful. I mentioned C learning also draws from peace studies and conflict transformation. And if we look at the field of conflict transformation, Johann Galtung, who is considered the father of peace studies in some ways, um, and we, we drew from him in sea learning. And I had the opportunity to meet him twice when he came to Atlanta, which was nice. He has these different steps towards building to positive peace, uh, not just the elimination of fighting and conflict. Sometimes we think of peace as just the absence of war, and it's not, you know, or the absence of violence. It's not. It's the presence of relationships and institutions and a culture that ensures the continuation of peace. And the first step, he has several steps leading to that. The very first step is what he calls trauma conciliation. So you have to acknowledge the harm. People have to engage in a process of healing that allows them to move past the harm that has been caused, not forgetting it. And forgiveness is involved in this and a process of inner reconciliation. So Richard Moore, uh, who's a good friend, the man that uh, the Dalai Lama calls his hero, his personal hero. You know, he's from Northern Ireland. He's thought a lot about his own personal story of forgiveness because he was shot and blinded when he was 10 years old by a British soldier. He's Catholic Irish, but he later grew up. He never had anger towards that soldier. And that's why the Dalai Lama calls him his hero because of his incredible ability to practice forgiveness and acceptance. And then he later met that soldier and befriended him. Mm. But he thinks about forgiveness not just in an interpersonal way, but also collectively about the situation in Northern Ireland, where conflict has been raging, and there's a colonialist history that goes back 500 years. And at the heart of that is collective trauma. And um, moral injury is another term that's very helpful in moving us away from the kind of medical idea of big D trauma and that kind of thing. But moral injury, when you think about what was done to people who you consider to be your ancestors, your people. So they're like a part of you, really. You're a part of them, right? And you think about the way they were oppressed and the way they were treated. And then you still see signs of that today. You see injustice, you see inequity. Then you will experience moral injury. Mm -hmm. And it definitely impacts your nervous system. It impacts your emotion regulation, your perception of yourself and others. So it's something that has to be addressed. And I think contemplative practices have a lot of potential 
in helping us bring about that kind of healing. From all of your work and training compassion in so many different settings, I wanted to get your perspective on the barriers to compassion. And, you know, I think as we've been talking about nervous system patterning is certainly a big one that many of us carry for all kinds of different reasons. But I'm wondering some other barriers that you may have come across yeah. that kind of make it difficult to get to these uh, states of compassion. Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. And I love the way you framed it because we do have these inner barriers that could be you know, held onto by our nervous system. But then we also have a lot of conceptual barriers. So I think misunderstanding what compassion and empathy is, just a lack of understanding of even what these terms could mean and the role they play in our life. I think that's one of the biggest barriers. So I was talking to a colleague of mine, uh, Amy Richards, uh, we share an office. She works uh, for the C Learning program on the research team and also works in global health. And we were talking about Paul Farmer, who died recently and is uh, a legendary figure in the area of global health and and is really respected so much for his compassion, starting hospitals around the world and raising awareness uh, for the needs of the marginalized, of the poor. And there are a lot of tributes to him going around now, praising his compassion and the impact that he had. And, and Amy said, well, it's interesting because I had the chance to ask Paul Farmer a couple of years ago what he thought about compassion and the importance of compassion in global health and public health. And he said, oh, I don't like it. That's not what we need. You know, we need justice. We need, you know, we need to go out and do these things, et cetera, et cetera. Not, not just feelings, you know. Mm -hmm. And... Dr. David Addis from the Task Force for Global Health guest visited my class last week. And he talked about this, about understanding the, the near enemies of compassion, pity, a kind of sympathy that looks down on other people or that's fleeting. And that's the way a lot of people see compassion. You know, in Northern Ireland with Richard Moore, he invited the Dalai Lama to talk to a group of people working on development education, which means education around global poverty. And they weren't interested in the idea of compassion because for them it's a justice issue. So the language of justice, of human rights, these kinds of things, you know, people understand that and they, they get very fired up. Yeah, we need to do work. And you talk about compassion, it sounds like it's soft, it's an emotion, it's fleeting, it's, it's like pity. You know, that's not something you can build an ethical system on or you can use to justify the, the good work you're doing. That's not a, a, an engine for social change, right? But... I think the reason why they respond that way and the reason Paul Farmer did is because they have one understanding of compassion, which is that understanding, pity. But of course, compassion can be understood in many, many different ways, right? Compassion, as Roshi, Joan Halifax, and others have said, it's having a soft front and a firm back. Compassion is absolutely consonant with justice. In fact, without compassion, why would we even work for justice? You know, why would we even see the value in human rights? So there's a much deeper meaning of compassion. And sometimes people say, well, what's the relationship between compassion and health? Does compassion make you healthier? Or does it not? You know, that kind of thing. But without compassion, we wouldn't even have survival as a species, right? Without maternal care, without the care of our young, like no mammalian or bird species would even exist without compassion. So we forget that that is also compassion. And in fact, that's the fundamental, you know, ground of compassion, and we think compassion is just about kindness. Like, you know, when, when I buy my coffee, I say, I say thank you to the barista. Like, okay, I mean, that's nice. But, you know, compassion is so much bigger and more fundamental than that. And people are not seeing that. Yeah. You know, people don't see that. They don't understand how our entire societies would fall apart without compassion. So they neglect, you know, all these things. Like, you know, I was at a conference uh, of, of scholars and and scientists about compassion. And the question came up, can you think of a compassionate teacher, a teacher who you had, who embodied compassion for you? And some of the participants couldn't think of anyone, right? So then I thought of how in the Tibetan tradition, it said that one of the most compassionate people in your life is the person who taught you to read and write. Because if you think about it, uh, literacy is not something we just learn on our own. We have to be taught. No matter how smart you are, you don't learn to read or write on your own. 
And where would we be if we couldn't read or write? But, you know, how many of us can remember the person who taught us to read and write? And do we see that as an act of compassion? Well, it's so central to our well-being. So once we take that lens, then we can look back and say, oh, actually, yeah, there, if, if I understand compassion in that way, I can see I've received countless acts of compassion and I'm constantly seeing it around me. And our whole school system is filled with acts of compassion because lots of people are becoming literate. But if I don't have that lens and I look at the school system, then I only see problems. I see like what's wrong. And I look at society and I think that what's, what's wrong with society and it's horrible and, you know, it needs to be fixed. We just tear it all down because it's such a disaster. But that's because my understanding of compassion is, is too narrow. And I think that is a problem also that we have right now is that a lot of young people, I'm worried, are growing up being taught to look at all the problems and not see the countless acts of compassion that are also there constantly around us. And if we only look at one side of the picture, they're both important, but if we only look at one side, there is a real chance that we fall into despair and hopelessness and that we lose our uh, sense of needing to work together to improve things, which is also at the heart of compassion. Yeah, and it strikes me also that getting a real handle on interdependence and developing that lens is also part of what you were saying, I think, you know, it, it kind of organically engenders compassion if you really understand that we all depend on one another and the entire planet. So I love that the sea learning program and all of the work that you do is kind of systematically bringing those that awareness to so many people. Well, I know we're coming up on our time. And I know recently you said you've transitioned into mainly just teaching. And you've kind of been thinking of some unique approaches to, to how you teach. Do you want to share a little bit about that before we wrap up? Sure. So I'm teaching a class called Compassion in Human Health. And I guess in a way, I'm trying to experiment with the class along the lines of what I mentioned with this kind of social empathy lab is what is it like to really see the experience of taking the class as part of the learning? Mm-hmm. Not just the content of the class, of, not just the content of, of readings. And so we're in a theater classroom. So it's an acting studio. So half the classroom is a pit and we sit in the pit in a circle and it's a no technology classroom. So um, there's no screen, you know, so you can't show PowerPoints. It's very hard to lecture. So I've never really lectured in the class and we've never had a PowerPoint in the class. And we do, uh, we, we have experiences, you know, we do activities, we do a lot of group work, a lot of pair work. And usually our class starts with two students giving a personal statement where they talk about who they are, where they come from. It's very open-ended. They talk for about five to seven minutes and then they take questions if they're willing to, which everyone has been. And through that, they have created an environment that is really a very open space, uh, a safe space. Mm. So when we have a guest visitor, you know, they come in, they sit with us in the circle. And twice I've asked the students to go around, introduce themselves to welcome the visitor and, and say one word that they associate with the class. And they say things like open, therapeutic, you know, empathy, um, non-traditional, you know, vulnerability. So I think that, again, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, when he talks about secular ethics, there are three sources for secular ethics, science, common experience, and common sense. And I feel like in the world of contemplative science, we've, we've really stressed the science, like we're quite good, at, good about the science, you know. But I'm very interested in what he means by common experience and common sense, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had Richard Moore come in to visit the class, not in person. He, he came in virtually from Northern Ireland, and he talked about his story of forgiveness and his understanding of forgiveness. And I think it, it was really impactful on the students because it's an extraordinary case of forgiveness. And it doesn't just apply to the soldier who shot him. He applies that to everybody because in his mind, forgiveness is a gift you give yourself. And he said, why would I allow somebody else to have control over my own happiness and my own mental state? Which is amazing mm-hmm. when you think about it. Like when he said that, I got another little glimpse of why he's the Dalai Lama's hero. Because the amount of mental strength that you need to have in self-confidence to say, no, I'm going to control my mental state and my attitude. I'm not going to let you control that. 
So you can attack me. You can say all sorts of bad things about me. You can lie to me. But uh, I get to decide. You know, you're not going to live rent-free in my head. So that is experience. Like, that's the experience of a human being. He's just sharing his experience. He's not saying everybody should do this. Everybody has to do this. He's just saying, this has been my experience. And it's been positive for me. Forgiveness has been a positive thing for me. And I wouldn't have been able to achieve what I have achieved if I didn't have forgiveness. So I'm very interested in common experience and I'm very interested in common sense. So what is common sense? Like if we have a bunch of undergrads together in our classroom and we explore, like they have never been given a definition of compassion or empathy or health in the class. I've never said to them, this is what compassion is, right? This is what empathy is. So how do they know what it is? Well, they're human beings and they're already, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old. And we get together and we talk, we talk about situations, we act out different situations. We use different activities, right? And then we, we explore empathy as human beings. Like, what do we understand from this? And through that, I think they develop inductively a very, very rich and varied understanding of what empathy is. You know, that's a lot better than giving them a definition and then putting that on a test or something. So there are also no tests or quizzes in this classroom. So th th this class was like an experiment for me. Like, if you actually led a class this way, uh, very inductively, very much through activities, very much through interpersonal learning, communal learning. Like, does learning actually happen? <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> or is it just like party time? You know, and I think that it's one of the best classes I've ever taught. You know, I think it's amazing. And one one of the groups of students, they're now doing their group projects. One of the group projects is on the class itself, because the student said we want to like actually study this and share this as a resource for other faculty, for the administration. So I also have C-Learning to thank for that because working with all these educators, all these school teachers, working with young children really taught me how to do that, how to teach in a different way. And so uh, I'm really grateful to, to all of them for changing me as an instructor. That sounds amazing. Um, I wish I could take that class. <laughs> I'm thinking back, you know, from your earlier comments about research and science and the approach, and then you just said, you know, there's no tests and quizzes in this uh, in this class, and you're curious to see whether learning happens. So I'm wondering how will you evaluate that in the absence of test scores, right, which would be the traditional way. How are you approaching knowing whether learning is occurring? Yeah, I think the final projects will be interesting because they have to produce something for our class. And they also, one of the things I asked them to do, the provost at Emory, Ravi Belamkonda, he's very interested in student flourishing and student well-being and, and re-envisaging student success, right? What is student success? Not just getting the job and having the money or whatever. That's one version of success. And if that's your version of success, fine. But like, is, is it just, is that it? You know, so this class is actually part of, it was proposed to him as part of his larger initiative in human flourishing. So I told the students what that means is that since he is kind of taking ownership of this as part of his initiative, <laughs> he's going to have to listen to you, what you say at the end of this, right? So I said, for each project, you'll, you'll write a, a one page executive summary and it will go to him. So maybe we'll see from him <laughs> whether he thinks they learned anything <laughs> in this class. But I also think, like, the question you raise, I, I don't really have an answer for that. What does it mean to have rigorous learning in a context like this that's heavily experientially driven, where you can't fall back on the typical papers and quizzes and tests? And what does evaluation mean in that context? You know, I guess if you're the professor, you have a responsibility. You're part of a system. So you have a responsibility. But at the same time, you also have a responsibility to think critically about the system that you're part of. And I think Emory is a great system, and I think higher education is great, and liberal arts education is great. I'm a big fan of liberal arts education. It doesn't mean it's perfect. And right now, the constant evaluation of students and the constant testing and the way that we're approaching understanding and learning, we're doing a lot of things that don't make sense in our current world. Like we're living in a world where we're carrying around with us these devices that have access to the best libraries in the world. You know, we have unprecedented access to information that is un unimaginable. And yet we're still having students memorize stuff and fill out stuff on tests. And, you know, it's like there's something wrong there. 
you know, and we haven't really thought enough about the question you raised, which is, okay, what is evaluation and what does it mean? And the other thing is, and we talked about this in our class, there's a thing called, I think it's called Goodard's Law, which everybody should learn about in research methods, but I never did, which is that when the measure becomes the goal, it's no longer a good measure. Mm-hmm. And so the measure in education is grades. It's supposed to be measuring learning. But the instant that the student realizes that what they need is the grade, that's all they carry with them, and that's what helps them to succeed, then it's not a good measure of learning anymore because they're going after the grade. And we have created that system. So basically, they're going to do what maximizes their grade, not what maximizes learning. And those two can be actually be in conflict with each other. So what are we doing about that? I mean, I don't, I don't hear enough people thinking about this. You know, we should think about it. Well, I love the way you're thinking about it. And um, yeah, there may not be clear answers yet, but I really appreciate you living into the question in the ways that you are. So um, thank you. Thank you so much, Brendan, for all of your amazing work and your contributions to this field. I'm so excited by the ways that you're challenging our conventional ideas and keep looking with this critical lens and uh, asking really important questions. So appreciate you and appreciate the time that you've taken today to be with us. Thank you. I I appreciate the opportunity, Wendy, and I appreciate all the work that you're doing at Mind and Life. As I said at the beginning, it was Chicago and also Mind and Life through that Destructive Emotions conference that got me interested in all of this to begin with. So it's an organization that's always been dear to my heart, filled with people who are also dear to my heart. So uh, thank you for letting me just uh, go on and riff on your show for a while. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. And music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated, and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening.